Good evening and welcome to the first lecture of the fourth week of the 1985 Rare Book School. Those of you, which is quite a number of you, who have been here on previous occasions will know that what I now do is sell things. The t-shirt shop will be open immediately after this lecture. That is the t-shirt shop. We have small, medium, large, and extra large, but if you are an unusual size, like medium, <laughs> and you are contemplating buying a t-shirt which costs five dollars, then I suggest that you buy them tonight because we are going to run out of some sizes before the end of the week, I can see. There are also aprons available, and these are both in blue with a white lion like the one that I'm wearing now, and in red with a black lion like the lion on the brochure advertising the 1985 Rare Book School. Those are $7 a piece. So, t-shirts and aprons available immediately after this lecture. They will again be available after the lecture tomorrow night, and will finally be available in the final reception on Friday afternoon, which is always by popular request, I may say so. People are eventually simply beaten down, or perhaps they haven't packed enough clothing. <laughs> it's our great pleasure to welcome tonight Matthew Carter, who will be speaking on the creation of his typeface galley art. Those of you, you who receive this excellent journal, Visible Language, uh, we'll find that the text of this talk is printed in here. Those of you who have it might want to go out for a drink at this point because my text is really exactly the same, though the slides are a bit better, I hope. Um, in fact, those of you who subscribe to Visible Language and belong to ATIPI and went to the ATIPI seminar at Stanford two years ago, of which this is the first volume of the proceedings, will eventually get three copies of this uh, journal. You probably should have three drinks. Um, the original, the, the, my original purpose in, in writing this talk was in response to a request from uh, Chuck Bigelow who organized that uh, seminar. And he was interested in Galliard. He'd written an article about Galliard in uh, fine print. And he was interested in it as a revival of a historical face. And so this talk on Galliard really looks at it from that uh, point of view. And it is indeed, by and large, a, a historical revival. The faces it hopes to revive were cut by a French artist who worked between about 1540 and about 1590. Now I should probably begin by sketching in the historical circumstances. In the early part of the 16th century, Paris became the center of the book arts in succession to the northern Italian cities. The aesthetic renaissance and the new humanist learning from the Catholic South met the religious reforms of the north in France, and whatever else those powerful currents stirred up, they certainly made bookselling profitable. Competitions among, competition among printers benefited the emergent trade of typecutting and of typefounding. This was, of course, the time of the protracted French uh, civil wars of religion, the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, and so on. Parisian types for Roman and Italic were based, as their names in both French and English tell us, on Italian models. In fact, on faces cut for Aldous in the last years of the previous century, which the French letter cutters naturalized and surpassed. The man seen by his contemporaries, and by us, as personifying the unrivaled French ascendancy in letter-cutting was Claude Garamond, whose name has come down to us for the genus of majestic, classic, old-style Romans from which the whole subsequent evolution of Roman has sprung. Within Garamond's own lifetime, he died in 1561, there began the first commercial type foundries. 
Originally, printers had made or had had made their own types. In time, they traded in type with one another and bought new ones from independent punch cutters. Type, founding, type foundries made the step to capitalism. They stocked faces by many cutters and dealt with the printing trade at large. I think it was their need to distinguish between a variety of faces they stocked that led them to use the names of cutters to identify and eventually to commend their types so that from this time, about the middle of the 16th century, punch cutting ceased to be an anonymous calling. We know the names of most, I would say, of the cutters of 16th century type. One of the first, and indeed the largest... Yes, we should have the lights down at this point. Great, it works. Uh, one of the first, indeed the largest, of the early type foundries, the three early type foundries, was that of Christopher Plantin, a Frenchman denizened in Antwerp, a fine printer with a passion for type which he collected and commissioned. This is his portrait by Rubens, in fact, painted after Plantin's death and I suppose copied from, uh, from another portrait. This an engraving uh, with the copper plate beside it, uh, done, I think, the year before Plantin died, 1588. He, as part of his business, Plantin hired out matrices and sold spare sets at the regular Frankfurt uh, fairs, thereby disseminating the masterpieces of French letter design through the whole of Northern Europe. Plantin's business declined after his death, as indeed did the city of Antwerp in the 17th century, Due to the naval wars between the British and the Dutch, the British blockaded the River Scheldt, on which uh, Antwerp is built, uh, well, well inland. Uh, the port, of course, on which it uh, depended, which it now depends, uh, and that sort of cauterized the development of, uh, of Antwerp. But the building that housed uh, Plantin's Press descended in the family over the centuries until it was given by his descendants to the city of Antwerp as a museum. Those of you who've uh, been there will, uh, will recognize that it. it's the most beautiful uh, building, piece of Flemish Renaissance architecture, and the most numinous place to go, I think, of any that I've been in that have uh, connections with the printing trade. It's uh, more or less totally authentic, unlike the, uh, the other great house in Antwerp, Rubens's house, which is a bit of a joke among the museum fraternity. I think it was uh, restored from not very much. <laughs> but uh, this, is, uh, this is all uh, as it was. A book by the first curator of the Plantin Moratus Museum, Max Roses, which was published in 1905, showed that some typographical material survived there, but it was not until about 50 years later that an expert assessment of it was made. The occasion was the quarter centenary of Plantin's first printing, which was celebrated in 1955, when it was revealed that although the museum's wooden presses were well post-Plantinian, and there was little or no serviceable cast type of any antiquity, that Plantin's entire stock of punches and matrices survived. That's some of the typing cases uh, there now, but not much of that is of any age. This astonishing discovery that the finest collection of printing types made in a golden age of typography was in full working order, some muddle apart, was made even more valuable by the survival under the same roof of Plantin's accounts and inventories which named the cutters of his types. The job of matching the material to the documents took about five years, and the results, which have been published, have had a considerable impact on the scholarship of typographic history, on bibliography, and on the aesthetic appreciation of type design of that period.
the first time since, since those days, it was possible to study a sufficient corpus of confidently attributed work by half a dozen cutters, to get an idea of the quality of their output and the quantity of it, and a sense of their styles as designers. The first result of such an assessment must be, I think, to confirm the stature of Garamond, but to see him perhaps no longer as a solitary eminence, but rather as, a, as the first among equals. Of other cutters who could now be appreciated, two were Flemish, François Guyot and Hendrik von den Kier, the latter particularly employed extensively by Plantin, and there were three Frenchmen represented, Guillaume Labay, specialist in Hebrew, Hebrew, Pierrotin, a fine and still underrated artist, a red-hot Calvinist, and the most considerable printer among 16th century punch cutters, and Robert Grandjean. Now, Grandjean was not, of course, unknown before the Plantain Dark and these celebrations in uh, 1955. In fact, there's a British linotype face named after him, a very good one. But the name has really been used uh, as an alternative, a synonym to the overworked uh, Garamond nomenclature. Many of Grandjean's italics have been identified in French and Italian printing, notably by A.F. Johnson. And most of the 20th century Garamond revivals that we are familiar with have italics that were based unwittingly on Grandjean's designs. But the Plantin Moratus collection of Grandjean's types really showed their range and virtuosity for the first time to modernize. Since I wrote this uh, talk a couple of years ago, I have noticed uh, something that Ray Nash did for Parga in 1939. He had had cast some uh, type experimentally uh, in Antwerp, and he published proofs of it in uh, Parga, and uh, he, he cast one of the Grand John faces, and it led me to think that really, uh, in a sense, Ray Nash uh, was on to Grand John. I don't think anything came of it in the, in, the, in the commercial sense, but I think that Ray Nash... Uh, I hadn't realized this, but I think that he was looking closely at Grand John's type well before, uh, well before I did, certainly. One of the researchers in Antwerp who worked on the cataloging and identifying the material there became, in, in due course, Director of Typographic Development at Mergenthaler Linotype in New York, that's to say Mike Parker. And when I joined Mike at Mergenthaler in uh, 1965, 20 years ago, my God, one of our first concerns was to study whether any of the Plantinian treasures that were familiar to both of us would yield a good contemporary photocomposition typeface. Uh, we thought yes, and our choice fell immediately on the work of Grandjean. I should give you a few biographical facts about Grandjean himself. He was born in 1513, which makes him, one guesses, about one generation younger than Garamond. Uh, the exact date of Garamond's birth is not known. He was a Parisian, the son of a bookseller, and he was apprenticed to a goldsmith. Though I don't think it's necessary to infer from that that he was trained to work precious metals. There is very much in common, of course, between letter cutting and goldsmithing, two branches of minute metalwork that include the cutting of punches as part of both trades. Gutenberg's punch cutter was a goldsmith, uh, was a goldsmith and Aldous's punch cutter was a goldsmith. It's quite likely, I think, that, uh, uh, that uh, Grand John was destined uh, uh, to work in the printing trade, although he was uh, apprenticed to a goldsmith. On the other hand, I must admit, for one of his early typefaces, Grand John was paid in gemstones, and perhaps he set them. He started cutting type in the early 1540s, and he soon built up contacts with the city of Lyon in southeastern France, which was the entrepot for the Italian trade. One can see, I think, in Grand John's work, the influence of the decorative style of Lyonese printers, which is, tends to be a little more... Uh, little more flamboyant than that of uh, Parisians at the time. He spent all his life on the move. He lived at various times in Paris, at others in Lyon. He married a Lyonnaise, the daughter of an artist. 
He lived also in Antwerp and in Frankfurt, and he ended his days in Rome. He had a prodigious output. One can tell from the Plantinian account ledgers that over a period of some months, he was cutting punches at an average of two a day. When I worked in the late 50s at Enskede's, we thought one a day was pretty good. He produced in all 60 to 65 faces. One can't be exactly sure of the number because of some remaining problems of attribution. 18 or 19 were italics in at least four distinct styles and ranging in size from what we'd now call 42 point to about six and a half point. He never cut a true nonpral, never cut a six point. Nine or ten Romans, six or seven Greeks, between 11 and 13 other exotics, Syriac, Armenian, Cyrillic, Arabic, and probably a Hebrew. Seven or eight musics, including the ordinary staff notation with both diamond and round-headed notes, a tablature for stringed instruments and a plain chant. Eight civilite script faces, which, uh, which we'll look at in a minute. And a great many fleurons, a great many printer's flowers. I think, in looking at the work of the masters of the art, that his virtuosity is unequaled. He was also a publisher, though not a printer proper. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I'm trying to get it to focus a bit sharper. Good. This book, The Civilité Purile, which... Puerile Civility, a book on, the cur on courtesy for, for, for children, good manners for children, gave its name to the style of type which was used in it for the first time. This slide, in addition, shows you Grand John's printer's mark, publisher's mark. Uh, it's a rebus, of course. The word Jean in French means a reed or a rush. So Grand Jean, meaning a big rush. It's like John Day's, you know, the uh, rising sun and all that stuff. The civilité types imitated the ordinary handwriting of the period, the equivalent of what we would now call informal script faces, and were also deliberately meant by Grandjean, who invented the style, to be nationalistic. nationalistic. He considered civilité the appropriate face for typesetting the vernacular, was indeed known as the Lettre Françoise. Here's a close-up of the same face. You can see the wonderfully dynamic rhythm of the design, what Davini called... Davini called it a picturesque letter. Here's a rather more sober version of the same Gothic style. This was a tax form for the city of Antwerp, printed, uh, printed by Plantin, who was not above a bit of jobbing printing on the side. Um, and here in the next slide are the punches for that face. Uh, still, of course, at the Plantin Museum, Plantin Moretus Museum. I'm tempted to say they're in the same box, in the same cupboard as the same room as when he delivered them in 1567. Though I think now they're kept in a safe in the cellar. But uh, uh, they've never been out of that house, as far as I know. Civilité is an interesting face, and as much as it's the only style of printing type that has ever existed, that no longer exists, the only historical style that your typesetter will not have if you send him a layout marked up in Civilité. Very few other faces have fallen completely out of current typographic repertory. We carry most of our history around on our backs. Since I wrote that, Paul Dunsing has ruined my story by producing a civilité type which Herman Zapf uh, designed. Uh, curses. Here is a, uh, an early Roman face of Grand John's, cut well before his maturity, looking to my eye very Garamondian. It was cut in about uh, 1549. And here by contrast is a, is a titling face, uh, 24 point about, which is really Grand John in full flower, high style Grand John, cut 10 years later. 
you should, of course, discount the J and the U and the diphthongs, which are apocryphal. I find in these letters a splendid uh, confidence, and I would assume that by this stage in his life, Grand John's punch-cutting technique had become transparent in the sense that he had complete command of the medium, and from him came letter forms that expressed his own personality very vividly. I'd like to try to explain what Mike and I liked in Grand John's letter forms, and that we found expressive of an individual style. Let me try and do that by making a contrast between uh, some letters cut by Garamond and then uh, afterwards some cut by, uh, by Grandjohn. Uh, here are some capitals by Garamond. When I look at them, words like stately, calm, dignified come to mind. Certainly not bland. I don't uh, mean that. I, I love the way they're drawn, but they are rather static in their, in their shapes. Uh, I have some more from the same set, I think. And again, the J has no business there. I should explain these slides, by the way. They are not photographic slides. As part of the researches at the Planton Museum, they cast up all the matrices and proofed the resulting type, both on paper and on transparent acetate. On acetate, I think, as a help in identifying the faces in books by overlaying the proofs. I never found them particularly useful uh, for that purpose, but I kept them all as they were issued, and recently I vandalized some of them and stuck pieces in slide mounts with the result that you're actually looking at the actual impression from the actual type, cast in the actual matrices, struck by the actual punches, cut by the actual hand of Garamond. No portrait of Grandjean exists, uh, but these letters are his. And to me, looking at them, adjectives, these produced in the same way. Adjectives like lively, spirited, tense, vigorous, and so on come to mind. I see considerable differences in drawing between Garamond's shapes and Grandjohn's, and to me these springing forms are more obviously stylish and more individualistic than those of Garamond and of other contemporary letter artists. I can't remember how many slides of this I've got. You can see the ink squeeze around those, uh, those letters, those printed letters. It's hard to think of an analogy in, in terms of current typefaces between uh, Garamond and Grandjohn. I don't think there is one, truly. Of course, uh, Garamond is Helvetica. I mean, he's the, he's the central ground. Uh, it's rather hard to find an equivalent modern face that uh, has the sort of feeling in it that uh, Grandjohn's types have. I suppose Antique Orleve uh, and Eras have something of that uh, sort of uh, uh, vigor. One of Grandjohn's Romans that we studied most closely when we were looking for a model for a photocomposition design was this face known as Gros Cicero, large 12-point. A very interesting face, one of the pioneering designs in the departure from the canonical proportions of the Aldine and Garamond Romans. In other words, one of the very first large X-height faces that led to the larger lower cases of the 17th century Dutch types and, of course, eventually of Caslum. Here's a close-up of the uh, Gros Cicero, uh, a rather under-inked uh, proof, but it does show you the, the letter forms rather crisply. And here is a specimen from the book on the, of the same face, from the book on the Plantinian archives, which I mentioned before, which was published in 1905. Uh, and it shows the Gros Cicero with uh, a corrupt lowercase a that had found its way into the font at some point uh, since Plantin's day. This specimen, uh, as reprinted by Max Roses, was the origin of a fine monotype face called Plantin, 
face, I think, more familiar in Europe than in America, indeed rather fashionable in Europe for just at the moment, uh, done in pre-Morrisonian days at Monotype, and it was modelled on, uh, on the Gros Cicero, and it indeed preserved this uh, wrong fonte. And to the extent that Times Roman is now considered by historians to have been conceived as a refinement of monotype planting, this face, the Gros Cicero can really claim a considerable influence on our present-day typography. Uh, it's easy to admire Grand John's work, at least it's easy for me. One also feels drawn to him in a, in a sort of personal sense, as with Fournier Lejeune and Vincent Figgins, for example. Uh, two people whose work suggests that they were attractive and interesting uh, characters in themselves. Grandjean had an endearing habit of printing small specimens to celebrate the completion of projects, and he was the first to give his faces names. This particular type has the name that we adopted for our revival. It's La Gaillard. A galliard was a dance, a sprightly jig, appropriate, we thought, to the man and to his style. Other names he gave his faces were La Valentine, Le Mortel, La Grande Jeanne, I suppose a tribute to Antoinette, his wife, La Poétique, La Mignonne, charming names. The flowers in this specimen are... Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Have I skipped one? No. That is monotype planting. That is La Gaillarde. The flowers are also his. It's an eight-point, uh, this face. The flowers are also his. I don't think it's strictly true that he invented modular fleurons in elements that can be combined in different patterns, but he certainly perfected and popularized them. One could perhaps see in these arabesque ornaments and the other ones that he uh, cut, the influence of Lyon, again, the center of the silk trade in France. Uh, one sees in, uh, in pattern books, embroidery pattern books of the time, very similar elements to these uh, used in, uh, in textile design. Here are a few uh, characters from La Gaillard in a printed slide. It's one of the faces that survives uh, in Antwerp. This is a, a Grand John Italic of the style adopted in recent times as the companion to Garamond Romans. It was described by Grand John and Plantin as pendant or couché, uh, meaning hanging or lying. Uh, relative terms, of course. It has no less than four ampersands in that sam sample that I can count, a typical piece of exuberance on, uh, on Grand John's part. And I believe I have another slide showing the same face slightly closer up. You probably recognize the style of that in many of the uh, Garamond italics that are currently available. I should explain something about italics themselves. In Grand John's time, italic was acquiring its present function as an ancillary to Roman. But also, and perhaps chiefly, it still retained its original purpose of an alternative text face to Roman. Uh, I read somewhere recently that setting books in italic doesn't make for economy of space. I can't remember where I read that, but it certainly does. I mean, Aldous set books in italic for reasons of data compaction, as we would call it at Bitstream. You get the same amount of information in a, in a narrower space. He made the classics pocketable uh, by setting them in italic. Uh, here is a, a rather different style of italic, also uh, cut by, uh, by Grand John. More condensed, more regular. It was known, again, to, to him and to, uh, to plant in as droite, or upright relatively upright by comparison with the previous couché style. 
And this, I'm sure, was intended for continuous text. It was not intended to be used uh, as a counterpart to Roman. If you went to a bookshop now and picked up a paperback, you'd be surprised to find it set throughout in italic, but of course in the 16th century that was often the uh, practice. Let me go back one slide, just so that you can see the, the difference in rhythm between those two, uh, two italics. To conclude Grandjean's biography, he spent the last dozen years of his life in Rome in the service of the Cardinal de' Medici and the Pope, and it was there that he cut most of, the, of uh, his exotic faces to equip the Medician and Vatican presses for the extraordinary publishing enterprise of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, not aimed against Protestantism in Europe, but as part of the Jesuits' attack on heresy in the Middle East by means of printing the Christian scriptures in Arabic, Armenian, Syriac, Hebrew, and so on, the languages of the countries around the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. Remarkable books, if you ever have an opportunity to look at them. Grand John was held in high regard in the papal service. The records refer to him as Maestro Roberto, and he was well paid. Uh, James Mosley, who, who uh, reads Italian, tells me that the records suggest that he was pursued in Rome by German Protestant headhunters who tried to lure him away to the north to work for the other side. Uh, James has this vision of him working with Swiss papal security guards at the door. His continued residence in Rome may have been directly due to the Pope, uh, Gregory XIII, who took close personal interest in the conduct of the Vatican press. This is a specimen of one of Grand John's Arabics cut in Rome, which establishes the date of his birth, you see, by the imprint at the foot of the page. He was 70 in 1583. Uh, I've inserted a, a slide which has really no business here, except it's such a nice slide, I couldn't resist it. It's one of Grand John's Greeks, since we were talking about exotic faces. This was cut well before his uh, time in Rome, but uh, uh, I like the slide, so there it is. Accounts in Rome of payments to Grand John late in 1589 refer to Punches as being his last because of an illness from which he died. He would have been aged uh, 76 or 77 then and uh, died in harness. He was still at work. Here is one of his arabesque flowers very simple arrangement, part of uh, uh, a very complex fleuron, if you combine all of its elements and all of its different permutations. Uh, and I put this up for you to look at while I say something about uh, Galliard. The object of designing the face was to make a serviceable, hard-working, adaptable, contemporary photocomposition typeface based on what we saw as a strong and relevant style which there was no effective, faithful modern version. Monotype plantin, excellent face though it is for certain kinds of printing, having departed considerably from the model. It's a much better face for certain kinds of printing than Galliard is, if you want to know the, the truth. Uh, the two of them complement one another, uh, rather. Uh, Galliard was not undertaken as a pious exercise in homage, whatever our affection uh, for, for Grand John's ghost. Fitness for use was the priority, and we did not enlarge photographs and work over them literally. Uh, that's a, a, a perfectly respectable technique used by uh, Emery Walker, amongst other people, of enlarging photographs of type and then bleaching the letter forms so that they, you can see them and draw over them. You then re-photograph them and uh, so on. Uh, but we didn't do that. We, we uh, redrew from scratch. And the Roman in particular is not based on any one of Grand John's Romans. It's a sort of anthology of all of them. There are two reasons for making an interpretation rather than a literal copy. In looking with Mike Parker at the early trial drawings I made, Mike would comment that some letter must be wrong when the letters I had done would be wrong because Grand John would never have done it that way. I could, of course, immediately point to a case where Grand John had done precisely that. 
But really, Mike was right, because the perception of style is subjective and interpretative. One digests a style and sort of recreates it without focusing on particular eccentricities. The second reason for not working too literally was that it seemed that by that assimilating the style, by drawing the face rather than retouching photographs, that that was the only way really to undertake the design of bold faces, which would be necessary, and of course the many characters required in modern-day fonts, which Grandjean didn't have the foresight to design, like dollar signs and pound signs and modern figures and so on. Uh, we were on our own when it came to doing those, and we thought that by working hard on redrawing the, 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 the Roman and Italic, we might sort of learn something about the style, and that would fit us a little bit more to, to, to do some of these uh, uh, other characters. In the Italic, we were in fact a little closer to following a particular model in the end, having tried and rejected a few of them. We thought the Pendant style uh, had been overdone, was too familiar. That's the style I said was the normal companion for Garamond Romans nowadays. We considered the, the upright style, the droite style, and I drew some trials. This was one of them, but in the end we rejected them. I can't remember how many slides I have. Those are both rather uh, upright styles of italic. This I throw in to show you just one letter to demonstrate how far letter cutting had gone by about 1550 when this letter dates towards the Baroque away from the classical but almost purely uh, mannerist uh, form. The early development of uh, Galliard was really rather a saga. It was started at the time of the 18 unit liner film phototype setter uh, that's to say, a phototype setter which spaced letters according to a rather coarse uh, incremental uh, unit of advance. And I found the constrictions of a coarse spacing system prevented me from getting the effect that I wanted in the Roman. I drew a couple of Romans and scrapped both of them because they sort of wouldn't swing. I couldn't get them to, uh, to fit right. And then there came along a, a, a machine which superseded the, uh, the old line of film, the big line of film, which was called the line of film Quick, which I thought was going to be our salvation because it had a very fine spacing system. Uh, but the problem with the quick was that it was not a commercial success. It didn't last long in production. So no sooner had I uh, given a shout of joy that here was a machine with a wonderful fine uh, spacing system than it went out of, uh, uh, out of existence. It wasn't really until the advent of the 54-unit uh, VIP phototype setter that we took up the project again, uh, 54 units obviously being three times as fine as the 18-unit system. And immediately I felt that the 54-unit Roman redrawn for that uh, fitting was more promising, although a good italic still eluded us. That's another one that we chunked. In the end, we chose one of Grand John's four italic styles that was more calligraphic and more novel. Uh, you see it here. That is from one of Plantin's, the uh, Athendonica Roman and italic, were commissioned by Plantin. In other words, they were cut to order by uh, Grand John just like that uh, civilite type I showed you earlier for the, where the punches survive. The punches for these faces also survive in uh, Antwerp. And of all Grand John's faces, uh, I think these, this pair, the Ascendonica Roman and Italic, are the only pair that was intended by him to have what is now the accepted relation of companionship. We like the Italic with Roman, uh, the way you see it here in this uh, slide. And here is the Italic font uh, by itself, photographed from the punches by Mike when he was working at the museum uh, uh, in the late 50s. Here are the two revived 
faces, uh, Galliard and Galliard Italic, seen together, snipped out of a catalogue designed for the Museum of Fine Arts uh, in Boston by Carl Zahn. Carl Zahn is a sort of book designer who every type designer should be should subjected to. He has a way of making a typeface work extremely hard, and you know pretty well by the time Carl's designed a book in it whether it's going to work or not. Um, it's, this shows you some of the things in Galliard we'll look at a little more closely later on. It has a number of different weights. It has modern figures and old-style figures, as well as, uh, of course, Roman and Italic and small caps and so on. Here's a slide from the first book set in Galliard for the Limited Editions Club. It was, uh, it's an edition of Vion. I can't remember can't tell whether that's getting better or worse. That's better, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, an edition of Vion, printed at Steinhauer and designed by uh, Steve Harvard. Here is the... Um, the French and English are on opposite pages, uh, with the French in Italic and the English in, uh, in Roman. Now, I guess until recent times, a book face would have been the extent of the ambitions of a typeface like Galliard. But really, to launch and to sell new typefaces nowadays, one cannot depend on book designers. And I don't mean to insult almost all of you who probably are book designers, but naturally, book designers sort of can't afford to be as innovative in use of type as some other kinds of graphic designers. And it's really to those that you have to appeal for the initial launch of a, a typeface to be commercially successful. A new typeface must be accepted for the widest possible range of typography, and most importantly, it must be accepted in advertising typography. So it must work both for text and display, and to have that sort of versatility, bold faces are essential. Although I suppose 75 to 80% of the total use of a face, even in advertising, is in its ordinary weight, uh, it's the ability to, uh, to do uh, that is the ordinary weight. So is that. This, I think, unconsciously was an interesting ad. It uses Galliard for the heading and plantain, uh, which I explained uh, came from the same source for the text, unconsciously, I think, but uh, a nice combination. That's the slide I wanted. I mean, this is an example of the use of a boldface in, uh, in the rough and tumble of newspaper advertising typography, and it's, it's the ability to function in this sort of circumstance which allows a new face to be widely accepted by uh, typographers uh, nowadays. Um, the gratifying part of, uh, of its use for book design and so on uh, follows on. The design of bold faces for types like Galliard, which is to say old style faces, unlike sans serifs or slab serifs, which have always had good bold weights, has undergone a change since the advent of photocomposition. Here's a comparison between two italics. It's not very easy to see that slide. I hope you can, it's a pencil drawing. I should ink it in one day. It's a comparison between two italics with similar historical antecedents. The upper one is a linotype uh, Garamond, hot metal linotype Garamond, and Galliard is, is down below on the bottom of the slide. And both of them are in the heaviest weights in their respective series. The, the, the linotype Garamond only has one heavy weight. <coughs> Galliard has four, four weights, all told. <coughs> um, you can see that the heaviest weight of Galliard is much heavier than the heaviest weight of the linotype face. Uh, it's able to be so, so much bolder than the hot metal face because of the fact that the characters in the photocomposition face can kern, can overlap their bodies. And I've, I've noodled in the kerns in red. I think there's a close-up of this uh, slide. Yes, there. 
where you see that uh, red crayon is the parts of those letters uh, which actually intrude on the space of the adjoining letter, the neighboring letter. And you can see almost all of them are that way, some on both sides. As inter-character space is reduced by bringing the letters closer together by this means, the internal counters can be reduced in proportion and the positive image correspondingly increased in weight. Heavy bold weights are really a photocomposition phenomenon in this sort of face, uh, old-style faces, very much pioneered by uh, ITC. As bolds get bolder and bigger series become possible, the designer has the problem of reconciling some sort of stylistic consistency across the range of weights with some individual intrinsic quality in the heavy letter forms. It's one thing to lay out a multi-weight series schematically, but it's quite another to arrive at a workable ultra-black with some personality of its own. And I really found this the most interesting part of the design of Galliard, uh, the design of the series, that's to say making these bold weights. The result is really something very close to caricature in trying to keep these rather massive forms as articulate as possible. I hate bold faces that look as though they've been dipped in chocolate or fed baking soda. Uh, they're obviously, I mean, Cooper Black is, is the great exception, but uh, that sort of approach for a face like this would not be appropriate. Here's a little progression of three of the four Roman weights uh, taking one letter in the face. Uh, oh, you can see as it goes up in weight, to the black. Something's attacked that slide. That's the heaviest weight. You can see how the letter form has become deliberately exaggerated. The, the crotches in the letter have become uh, very exaggerated. Uh, it is rather like a caricature, really. And the object of doing this is to preserve a clean, sharp line in the image uh, in the interest of, uh, of readability, clarity. Similarly, in the italic, another little progression. These, which are in fact used, have been printed in visible language as N's, but it's the same thing. Um, the, these, these parts uh, become uh, broader as the uh, letter gets heavier. The same sort of, I, I use the word character, I hope you see what I mean, that these are rather, uh, you're sort of rather sending up the letter form uh, as they get uh, heavier. I suppose the caricature can be overdone. This letter which I rather liked. <laughs> I was told to remove. Uh, my, uh, my editor disallowed that. Um, two of the Roman weights were designed in fact by computer, by the Icarus system developed in Hamburg and now in use widely in type design studios uh, here and in Europe. Galley was I think the first original type design to make substantial use of a computer in its creation. This was in 1977. I, in fact, drew the normal and the black weights. That's to say I drew the first and the third weight. The bold, the second weight, was interpolated, and the ultra was extrapolated from the first two. Uh, this slide, next slide, shows the Icarus output for a few characters, the computer output, uh, which I had to re-edit, although it was not necessary for the great majority of the computer-generated computer letters. Again, this is not an easy slide to see, but what you have there is, is in fact, a an overlay of a line over a, a black image. It's hard to see, but what it really shows you is that there are some slight differences between what I decided 
was the eventual shape and what the computer had suggested. But the amount of that that I had to do was uh, uh, rather rather uh, sparing. Um, the Icarus has come on a lot since those days. Um, at that time, it was very much less reliable for doing italic. Something about the uh, the lack of uh, you know the axial uh, proportions, the actual uh, axial uh, stress in the letter forms made it difficult for the computer to deal with them. It does them very much better now, I may say. But uh, in the end, uh, we did some unsuccessful italic trials. That was what the computer suggested for the <laughs> for a couple of weights of the uh, italic. And in the end, I. I drew all four weights of the italic uh, brute force by hand without the use of the computer. Gallard is a fairly complete family. It has two weights of small caps. Small caps are a very interesting design exercise for a type designer. They don't come along very often. Uh, most people make do with uh, scaled down caps nowadays in Fredacomp, but uh, ITC insists on, uh, in fact, on two weights of small caps. I think, yes, that's the, uh, the bold weight. Um, the design's interesting because, of course, uh, it's almost the only opportunity for a type designer to, to draw capitals that are for use in words with themselves, ordinary big capitals being much more importantly initials for words otherwise in lowercase, not the case with uh, small caps where they work together. Uh, and there are, because I had to, uh, to draw these small caps and enjoyed doing so, they're not really... Uh, just rescaled caps. There are in fact some differences in detail. I did that deliberately so I could tell at a glance whether typesetters who I've asked to do small caps had really set small caps or whether they <laughs> <laughs> um, We've also got some old style and modern figures. We've got uh, superiors, accents. We've got acorns and clover leaves which are uh, authentic uh, Grandjean uh, uh, additions to the font. Accents, of course, every conceivable accent under the sun. We also provided some final flourished letters in keeping with Grandjean's practice, though one runs the risk in making these swash characters that someone may misuse them. This tongue-in-cheek exercise arrived on my desk at Mergenthaler one day <laughs> to, uh, to annoy me. Uh, I cut a great many more. I drew a great many more that we didn't uh, cut in the end. Those are... Uh, another couple of pages of uh, ligatures, some running to three characters. They're a problem to use nowadays, of course, because people like to adjust the space between letters as they typeset. And uh, once you have these tied ligature letters, uh, you can't, they're inflexible, of course, you can't adjust the space between them, and they tend to stand out rather, uh, uh, in a rather uh, obvious way if you uh, uh, tighten up the fit. I guess in the end, we did use for production more drawings than we discarded, but only just. We threw out three Romans, two italics, a bold face, before we arrived at a series we were happy with. And that in itself is a sort of tribute. I mean, that may sound uh, uh, very uh, amateurish to, uh, to work so by trial and error, but really it's a tribute to the technology in a sense that one can afford to change one's mind. Um, the cost of making trial photocomposition fonts being a fraction of what it would have been back in the hot metal days, one never would have been able to afford back in the days of linotype hot metal composition to, uh, to make trial fonts of that kind and scrap the whole thing, one would have had to be much more circumspect. Uh, but you can do it with photocomposition, provided, uh, uh, I suppose, there's a point where you've got to stop. But uh, uh, we were able to make some trial faces and uh, make up our minds about them without necessarily being rushed into production. 
I drew a range of Grand John's Fleurons. As far as I know, they've never been manufactured and released by Merck. Uh, I'm no longer associated with them, and so I, I'm not really sure, but I don't think that uh, uh, they've ever been manufactured. That, I think, is from a drawing. I've got some uh, proofs of uh, output from the VIP as well. It's rather nice if you make, uh, if you keyboard some of these elements um, and you loop the tape, you glue the ends of the tape together, you put it on a VIP phototypesetter and go out to lunch, and when you come back, you've got some wallpaper. <laughs> you wouldn't normally see them unless you were doing end papers or something rather in this way. These were just proofing runs to make sure that the letters joined up right and so on, the characters joined up right. Galliard was launched by Mergenthaler in 1978. And three years later, ITC took the face over and re-released it on a wider basis. So it's now available on the equipment of different typesetter manufacturers. Uh, I'm bound to say that not all of the versions of the face in current use are as good as the Mergenthaler one. I suspect that's very often true of uh, ITC faces. Uh, discretion forbids me from saying who's I don't like. I have a very pleasant chore, not a chore, uh, uh, a pleasant assignment every couple of years of teaching a course to the graduate graphic design students at Yale where everyone in the university communicates purely by poster. I don't know if it's true here, but it is at Yale. The students wanted a poster typeface for their own use. The graphic design students seem to me to do very little coursework. They're mostly doing posters for uh, music and films and so on. But they wanted, so they wanted a poster typeface. And in the few days that I had uh, with them that year, I took with me the 12-point drawings for Galliard, and we made a refined version with slightly narrower characters and thinner hairlines for use really at poster sizes, sort of one inch and, uh, and all the way up. And this was a, uh, it was really a Christmas card, I suppose, that I pasted up uh, with those characters and sent to the, uh, the uh, students in that class. That's just a, uh, a close-up. You can see that the hairlines in this version are really quite, uh, quite fine. And I'm pleased to say that when it's been used in, occasionally in posters, it does actually look better than the, uh, than the text weight, as you might expect. I don't want to end on a... Uh, hang on. Yeah, it's all the same thing. Um, I don't want to end on a note of uh, dissension, but in contrast to the normally amicable relationships that exist between board members at uh, Bitstream, there's one particular vendetta directed by one of my fellow vice presidents against the lowercase g in Galliard Italic. That's, that's the way it is now in the font. The vice president in question, who unfortunately happens to be in charge of production, made it perfectly plain to me that ITC Gallia would never be produced by Bitstream unless I drew an alternative lowercase g of a more acceptable form. I did so, and this was the result. If you buy, <laughs> if you buy Bitstream Galliard, that's in the font. I think that's the last slide. Yes, this is, this is the end paper using, uh, not actually uh, Grand John one, this was Stephen Harvard's end papers from that uh, Vion, which I use as end papers for these talks. Uh, nicely printed uh, use of uh, printer's flowers. Thank you very much. <laughs>